Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. Bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Gerard Depardieu plays a powerful, sex-obsessed French World Bank chief in Welcome to New York, a torn-from-the-headline saga of sin and money now playing on demand while it's in theaters. Liam Hemsworth and Billy Bob Thornton star in Cut Bank, about a small-town murder that's caught on camera and thrusts a man and his girlfriend into a high-stakes game of cat and mouse. Also starring Bruce Dern and Oliver Platt, watch it on demand starting April 3rd, the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And coming up on the show, Matt and I review the classic 70s paranoid thriller, Three Days of the Condor. Don't think conspiracy theories are real? Then explain to me why the show is three days late. I'll tell you why. Because we know too much, and they're trying to suppress the truth. Actually, I was just at a wedding all weekend. Is it too much to ask that you play along for once in your life? Sorry, sorry. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme inspired by um, the massive conspiracy to keep film spotting SVU off the air. Thank you. No problem. We're going to take a look at more conspiracy thrillers. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand. Allison, what are our picks this week? Well, first up is a film that is already available on demand. It is The Riot Club from director Lona Scherfig, who uh, did an education, among others. Uh, definitely a runaway favorite for the award, highly coveted, for highest concentration of handsome young British actors, <laughs> along with the odd Australian. It stars Max Irons, who is the son of Jeremy, as well as Sam Claflin, Douglas Booth, Freddie Fox, Sam Reed, Matthew Beard, Ollie Alexander, and others. And it's based on a play named Posh by Laura Wade. It's about a fictionalized version of the very real Bullingdon Club, which is an all-male, super-exclusive dining club at Oxford. Uh, the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, was a member when he was there. And the whole film has some very interesting stuff about class as both this thing that should be outdated and that everyone you know, doesn't care about anymore, and then, of course, is still very ingrained in this power structure. Max Irons plays... 
you know, a general left-leaning nice guy who keeps his very privileged background quiet. And he arrives at the college and starts dating uh, a girl played by Holiday Granger, who is, as many of the people are, you know, middle class, hardworking, got there on general academic merit rather than also you know, having coming from a family of generations of of people who've gone to Oxford. It's got a great beginning. I will say it falters a bit when you get to the part that you realize is the actual play that then takes up the bulk of the movie, which is at a, a dinner at a country, pu- country pub that is miles away because this club has been banned from every other location closer as they basically have this extravagant dinner, get completely trashed, and then wreck places. The Riot Club. The Riot Club. Hundreds of years of the best and the brightest. Over here we have a portrait of... Sir, you can't go through there. Oh, you're him. I'm so sorry. Not just offering you a club. I'm offering you a future. It's our time, gentlemen. We're at the top university in the world, and so are 20,000 other people, but there are no more than 10 in the Riot Club. So it's a movie about the rich and about how much class still may or may not matter. I think it can be a little pointed. It is a play, so sometimes speeches that are made on stage don't work as well in a film. But it really does have a great array of actors. And I think Max Irons is definitely definitely comes out of it looking like a future star. So it's one that uh, I definitely enjoyed watching for all that. I don't think it entirely escapes its stage beginnings. Uh, that's The Riot Club. And then on demand on April 3rd, we have Bluebird, which is from first-time filmmaker Lance Edmonds, who was an editor on Lena Dunham's film Tiny Furniture. And it's about an isolated logging town in Maine in the winter. So, you know, very cozy, very great place to be outdoors all the time. Uh, Where a woman makes a mistake involving a child, ends up kind of splitting the town and bringing tragedy to the town. It's got a great ensemble cast, including Mad Men's John Slattery, Louisa Krauss, Margot Martindale, and Adam Driver from Girls. But the standout is really Amy Morton, who is best known really for her work on stage. She's more established that way. On screen, the role that I know her best from is as the mom in Rookie of the Year. Mm. You know, float it. (laughs) Uh, But she is really terrific in this, in a wrenching role. This is not a feel-good film, but it does have some really wonderful acting, and I think Lance Edmonds uh, has made a very good start of his filmmaking career. So that's Bluebird, available April 3rd, and also available on April 3rd. And this one I haven't seen yet. And honestly, the fact that it's getting released so quietly, given its cast, does not get my you know raise my expectations. But Last Night's stars Clive Owen and Morgan Freeman as medieval-ish warrior whatever's named Raiden and Bartok. <laughs> Uh, that's about all I can really find about this film. I've watched the trailer. There's like a lot of talk of like lords and fealty and overthrowing and there's armor and it comes from Japanese director Kazuaki Kiria, who may be best known for Cassern, which is one of those early all green screen movies that came out around the same time as Sky Captain. 
Uh, and that's that's about all I can tell. But, you know, Clive Owen and Morgan Freeman, among others. Uh, I'm intrigued and I'm looking forward to seeing this one. That's Last Night's and it is available on demand on April 3rd. This is a major. This is Joe Turner. Listen, identification. What? Identification. Uh, uh, my name is Turner. I work for you. Now listen. Identify yourself. Uh, well, I don't. What is your designation? Uh, Condor. Section nine, department seventeen. The section's been hit. What level? What level? Level of damage. Everybody. Doctor Lapp, Janice, Ray, Harold. Harold was in the. Uh, uh... Are you in a company line? No, no, I'm in a phone booth. I'm, I'm just a block away. I'm in the street. You're in violation of secure communication procedures, Condor. Listen, you son of a bitch. I'm telling you, I came back with lunch and it was raining and the whole house was murdered. Everybody is dead. We kind of liked the flow of the episode last time when we did the review first, so we're going to stick with that for the time being, which means it is Listener's Choice Review time on the show. On our last episode, as we do on every episode of SVU, we gave you guys three options to choose from for our main review. And this time we wanted to go a little old school, review a classic that either one or maybe both of us had never seen before. In last place amongst the voting, much to my chagrin, was Shane, the George Stevens Western starring Alan Ladd. It got 20% of the vote. In second place was Late Spring, one of Japanese director Yasujiro Ozu's masterpieces. But it is a masterpiece the SVU listeners just decided they're not really interested in hearing us talk about. It got only 22% of the vote. The remaining 58% belong to Three Days of the Condor, the paranoid thriller from 1975, directed by Sidney Pollock, and based on a novel called Six Days of the Condor by author James Grady. Allison was wondering off-air, why is this one three days and that one was six days? I was like, well, obviously there was three more days in the book. Where did the missing days deleted go? Deleted scenes. Deleted scenes galore. We only got three of the days. Wait for the sequel. When, when The other three days. The <laughs> next three days of the Condor, yeah. Robert Redford stars as CIA analyst Joseph Turner. He's no super spy, though. He's a reader. He spends his days reading books, newspapers, magazines, and stories in a nondescript office in Manhattan. One day, while Turner is literally out to lunch, all of his co-workers are viciously gunned down by unknown assailants. And Turner returns to find the carnage and goes on the run in a desperate attempt to figure out who killed his colleagues and to stay alive. He gets help from a woman he kidnaps at random on the street named Kathy. She's played by Faye Dunaway. And she eventually warms to Turner's warm heart and bad circumstances, and probably to Robert Redford's truly gorgeous hair. And I mean that in all sincerity, Allison. Robert Redford's hair in this movie is a work of art. It's magnificent. It is incredible. Now, we didn't plan things this way, but there is a timely hook to this Three Days of the Condor review. Just a few weeks ago, it was announced that David Ellison's Skydance Productions is working on a television show adaptation of this film. So... My question to you, Allison, is this. I'd seen Three Days of the Condor before, but you had not. So, in light of your first viewing, does that make you excited to see a TV version of this film? Is it rich enough to sustain a high-quality modern TV series? Or did the film kind of disappoint you? And are you not looking forward to a TV show version? Well, mainly it made me think that there already has been a TV version oh. of this. And it did not work out so well, though I liked it a lot. Okay. Which is Rubicon, the ah. show that ran for one ill-fated season on AMC. I never saw in it. In 2010. It had like a great premiere. It did like record numbers at the time. And then people just slowly dwindled away from it. But it starred... James Badge Dale okay. as an analyst in a think tank, but as a pattern recognition analyst who starts discovering what may be signals in a crossword puzzle. 
which, you know, so pretty similar though to similar, the premise of Three yeah. Days of the Condor. Yes. And there is this kind of conspiracy that he starts uncovering, but it obviously lingers a lot longer in the think tank as opposed to what happens in Three Days of the Condor sure. where he's on the run. Right. And I really liked it. It was very slow paced. You liked Rubicon. Rubicon. Okay. I And I think that it, you know, points to, I think, an aspect of Three Days of the Condor that I also find very interesting that was a little sad to leave behind so quickly, which is the idea of people working for the CIA and just reading magazines and journals and, you know, trashy paperbacks looking right. for, like, s patterns, looking for possible codes and... Uh, and just spending their whole days doing that because it's definitely an occupation that invites insanity. Right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I did like Three Days of a Condor. I feel like it's, you know, it's so, it's wonderfully tense. It puts a non-agent in the field against agents and I enjoyed that. Yes. I like that how quickly this very comforting New York turns into this incredibly unfriendly place for him. Mm-hmm. I really did not love the relationship with Faye Dunaway's character. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what your take was on that, on that because it seemed a, I mean, it's a very familiar kind of relationship, right? In that someone gets swept up in this other person's uh, crazy kind of on the run thing. Mm -hmm. I just felt like the way it was handled in this was very tonally off. Mm. Uh, I, I basically, I wish they had, the sex scene was not there. Yeah. Uh, well, that's in it's interesting because that is a, a topic of much debate about this film. Uh, I'm, film I'm assuming you have seen, Out of Sight. Yes. They actually talk about this movie in that movie in a scene that is somewhat reminiscent of the scene in that film. And the sex scene in this movie clearly inspired the sex scene in Out of Sight, where yes. you have sort of parallel editing between the sex scene and something else. Uh, I think actually the sex scene in in out of sight is much much better and more interesting in that it makes both halves of the of the sex scene about the couple in this one you have the sex scene and her photographs Faye Dunaway's character is a photographer uh, no i don't love those scenes and they do sort of kind of the the romantic element of it does kind of fly out of nowhere although i will say, having said that we've already established Robert Redford's hair in this movie is <laughs> so beautiful that I, like I was ready to have sex with Robert Redford at the drop of a hat if the opportunity had arisen. If he had purple rose of Cairo <laughs> out of my my TV screen and been like, let's go, kid, I would have been like, all right, I, I guess I'm going to because that hair is so beautiful. So he's an attractive man. That said, he is kind of holding her at gunpoint and 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 uh, tying her up and doing all these sorts of things and. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a little quick. That's the kind of thing where I feel like the TV show version of this story could actually benefit from from more time to to make that relationship feel a little more natural as opposed to yeah, they're just kind of thrown together and it's like, "Well, time for a sex scene." I mean, on its own, I don't think it's necessarily a bad uh love scene, but yes, it 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 does kind of come out of nowhere. Having said that, I really love this movie. I do. Even with that, I would say that's really the one sticking point. And I wouldn't argue with anyone who feels like that, that th those scenes don't really work. But I just, it's not even like a rational thing. Like, I can't even mount an articulate objective defense. I just, I just, I just have a crush on this movie. I love the fashion. I love, like, yeah, the style. I love the way New York looks in it. And it feels, you mentioned how it seems kind of, you know, even though it's the 70s and this was like New York at its lowest ebb, it doesn't really feel like a dangerous place until all of a sudden it becomes this terrifying place where there's danger lurking around every corner. And I love the way that they shoot the action. I love the dialogue. 
I love the conspiracy. I love the nexus of weird, actual, real conspiracies that have taken root in this movie after the fact, which we can talk about. So, yeah, it's just, you know, I I just love watching it. I've seen it a few times and watching it again. I just get I get swept up in. I love the music that 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 70s jazz music. I want that music playing when I walk down the street in my neighborhood. (laughs) Oh, it's just great. I just really, really enjoy it. Yeah, I don't want to get stuck on this thing that I think probably is also the most dated part of the movie in a weird way. As much as this movie is set in a very specific 70s era mm-hmm. and it's, it deals with a very specific 70s paranoia, the way that that relationship is treated seemed the most dated thing about the movie. Mm-hmm. But I, the one thing I found kind of not, I wouldn't say it really redeems it, but that I kind of liked about it is that she almost has a, she almost like co- has commentary on her own, on the fact that she tumbles onto, into bed with him, mm-hmm. like she she kind of comments on it herself afterwards there's almost a sense of her chafing against the writing of her own character yeah and i i i don't think that really makes that writing any better before but it shows a sense of self-awareness that at least you know is better than nothing i suppose and i think under the circumstances i think faye dunaway is really good in the movie and i like the way she plays this character who's not you know she usually plays a sort of a more either glamorous or more sort of high-strung character, and she's a little more subdued and kind of realistic in this film. And I really... And there's that scene after the sex scene, and I thought she's just really beautiful and so natural and has some wonderful moments in that scene, too. So, yeah, I mean, does the film do all that right by her character? Not especially, well, no. Not even... I mean, the movie starts with also his girlfriend getting shot yes and literally that morning yes and he ends up in bed with someone else is that the next oh yeah is that the second day is that the next day or the same okay (laughs) look it's a it's a crazy day yeah and like i guess it was the this is what you needed all six days of the condor for allison right at least leave a buffer or two yeah yeah all right, but that aside, let, just setting that aside as it was problematic and it was okay. I do, I do, I love the idea of him trying to put book book learning basically, like, and not not even necessarily like book learning based on like facts he may know and also like spy novels he may have read basically right. into practice. Yes. suddenly on the run. I think that's a great premise that the film kind of quietly plays out and not in a hokey way. Yeah, it could be it definitely could be over the top. You could imagine it almost as like a MacGyver thing where he's like read everything, knows everything well, and can make gadgets you, and things like that. You know what I thought I thought of that has nothing to do with spies is true romance. And mm. the way you have this character is obsessed with like kind of these grand like comic books and all of these who suddenly gets the exact kind of like macho adventure that he wants and right. the girl tumble into his lap in that same way. Like the movie does not have that kind of escapism. No, the Redford doesn't play it like he's some kind of like uh, daydreaming nerd or anything like that. He's just an ordinary guy, right? And he is a nerd in a, like right. not a daydreamy way. No, like, he's a genuine. He's a boring kind of, like, nerd. Yeah, geek <laughs> with just the best hair in, on the planet. Right. He looks. He looks fantastic. Yeah. No, I, I I agree. I think all that's cool. And there's like a big scene that involves using a telephone. <laughs> Like using he like uses a, his past as like a telephone a telephone line louder. man. Yeah, they mention it man. right. They mention it. it's cl- it's it's well written. You know they mention it. They drop it in. And you don't think anything of it. And then later in the film, he is able to to use that ability to kind of put some pieces together and and piece t- piece together this this uh, crazy conspiracy. Uh, the other 
character who we haven't mentioned, who's maybe my favorite in the whole movie, is is Jaber, the assassin played by Max von Sydow, and another fabulous uh, actor and fabulous performance, one of his best, I think. And again, sort of undercutting what you what you would expect, right? Like you said, he is the Robert Redford character, not an action hero, not a super spy, just a bookworm. And Jaber is an assassin. He's incredibly deadly he's very dangerous but he is not the like I've, in most spy movies he'd be the guy where we'd see him in his hotel room like fl- uh, flogging himself or crying and watching pornography something to indicate his pathology that's not the case he is an incredibly well balanced normal guy when we when we see him and just cool under pressure like like what you would imagine an actual like real world hitman or assassin would be because to do that job you have to be you know, okay with it you can't be wrestling with it the way all movie assassins are you know are emotionally damaged he's just not that way he's just totally calm and collected and he has great advice too well that's it he is in some ways he seems the most have the most sane outlook yeah as much as it's a terrible outlook there's a part in the movie where he says no his position it's quite peaceful it's Mm. quite restful it's almost peaceful yeah no need to believe in either side or any side and there is no cause and in this in that this is a movie in which someone's trust in the system is just like immediately and devastatingly undermined mm-hmm. the idea that the professional assassin is the one who is like no actually like for peace of mind right being a professional stop assassin believing. is great yeah stop believing things stop believing yeah uh, you know the scene the scene involving him at the end is probably my favorite in the movie oh it's a great great and it's, scene it's just fantastic uh and I I like the idea that he I, he is in some ways the one who is the most professional and in the mo- the most in control yeah of the characters you know that it, the, otherwise this movie presents kind of secrets within the CIA but also like that the CIA is not particularly has like a, it makes the CIA look like a place in which you'll get immediately get burned in in order for them to kind of protect themselves. No, not a, it's not a flattering portrait of the CIA at all because their their security is not good clearly, and there are you know potentially there's a, the great line like what if there's a CIA inside the CIA, which is sort of uh, one of the theories that's going on, and clearly there's a lot of skullduggery going on uh, beneath the surface that even people in the CIA, even high ranking people inside the CIA, are unaware of. Which that's not that's really you would think that this is their job is to do this kind of thing. You would think they would be better at at spying on themselves or being a little more aware of themselves and what's going on in their own organization. Yeah, but that's like it's a common theme of all great spy right True. Spy novels and True. spy spy films is that you have uh, systems in which everyone is like that are that's built on lack of trust and mm-hmm. then everyone having their own silos and then also your basic ga- basic gamesmanship and like competing for power and it all adds up to losing sight of whatever patriotism and nationalism you're supposedly you've, your organization's been founded in the name of right so yeah i mean it uh, in that way it definitely it felt comfortingly familiar yeah. in terms of <laughs> very few, very few it's fiction pieces of fiction that I can think of that deal with spies and spy organizations mm-hmm. have a very optimistic view of them that I can think of. I already mentioned the conspiracy theories, the real world ones that pop up in this movie. Is that something you notice as well? It was something that I really noticed. Like which ones? Well, the fact that, I mean, it is a conspiracy movie. And then you have a very important scene that takes place in the World Trade Center. 
Uh, and when they pan up and reveal it, it's such a dramatic moment. Yeah. And then there are scenes set inside like the lobby of the World Trade Center. I won't give away what's going on there if you haven't seen it, but a very important scene. And then Faye Dunaway's character, did you notice what kind of car she drives? A Ford Bronco. So it's like the whole like, you know, like it's like the nexus of every real world conspiracy theory. I just love the way this fictional conspiracy movie I don't know. It has this like it's this weird way, almost as if real the real world has in some ways like like taken on this fiction and made it real in some ways. <laughs> it's kind of it makes it even more kind of eerie and awesome after the fact. And then of course the conspiracy that does lie at the heart of it has to deal with a very like very ob- universally <laughs> timely yes kind of uh theme in right terms of what's been going on. And there's another character, Cliff Robertson. We haven't really mentioned his character yet. The CIA bureaucrat guy. Another character who is not one-dimensional or is not the obvious version of that character. And that that scene at the end is also a great scene where he gets to sort of defend himself and the CIA and their their tactics, their dirty tricks, whatever you want to call it. And you don't necessarily walk away thinking he's right, but you do walk away thinking he might have a point or that you can understand how someone would have that worldview and do what he's done. You know, like that it's very easy to rationalize some of the things that happen in this movie when you believe what he believes. You may not agree with him, but it's easy to kind of see his point of view. And then there's not really a cliffhanger, but it's sort of a cliffhanger ending, kind of a sudden ending. I love that as well. It's very 70s. We haven't talked a lot about the sort of 70s-ness, the conspiracy aspect. That's something we can get to when we get to our recommendations next. But uh, I love the, the – generally the last couple scenes of this movie, the scene with Von Sydow, the scene with Robertson, all that stuff is great. All the, it's wintry. It's cold. Everything feels very you know, cold and isolated and remote. Everyone's wearing those great pea coats with those turned-up collars. I, I, other than the fact that the CIA is like evil and out to destroy people, what a great movie to live in this would be. Just the way to be the fashion and the, the ambiance, the excitement. If you could do all that without having, you know, Cliff Robertson and, and his cohorts trying to kill you, it would be awesome. I'm just, I'm saying that start of the movie when you're just, I kind of want the office, the office kind of drama. The National Historical Society right, or whatever he works the, at. Yeah, I think it's the American Literary Historical Society or something to do with liter- literaryness. Yeah. But I do kind of want the day-to-day there, which mm-hmm. maybe is why it's suited for a television show, is the idea of the workings of of analysts in the totally non-sexy side of the cia yeah that are just there digging for digging for symbols and patterns and possible codes I, I and like even that. when they, they they you know and not even realizing when you find something how important it may be which is the other thing it's like that the, that's part of it is that it's not even it's not even obvious when you discover something important that it's a tiny detail right well because you don't know exactly what you're looking for anyway right you're not looking for anything right right you're just kind of keeping your mind Guesswork. open yeah i i like that a lot and i think there is there is definitely room for something to be expanded there that and i i wouldn't mind seeing that all right well let's let's just wrap things up with this question i I, i'd seen this movie a bunch of times before you had never seen it i'm sure you've seen other conspiracy thrillers from the 1970s though we're going to talk about some of them in a minute where would you say this one ranks is this one of the best is it just par for the course i would put it in the middle i mean i like that it's more grounded than Mm -hmm. some a lot of other 70s conspiracy thrillers and paranoid movies yeah uh but i do think it has because of basically in ways because of that because it is it takes place in something much closer to the recognizable real world i think certain other character 
character-based issues become more apparent or harder to shrug off. Mm. So that's 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 what I would say. But I enjoyed I enjoyed watching it. Yeah. All right. I'd say that's fair. I, I think I enjoyed it uh, more than you do, and it is one of my favorites of this genre. But yeah, I, that, 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 I think that's fair. People should check it out, though. It is a really fun movie. It is available on Netflix. It is Three Days of the Condor. Now that we've reviewed Three Days of the Condor and swept the office for bugs, <laughs> I believe we're clean. No one is listening. Well, hopefully some people are listening, but no one is listening who shouldn't be listening. Let's now get into our recommendations for some of the other paranoid conspiracy thriller movies you can find online right now. Is this a genre you enjoy, Allison? It is a genre I enjoy. I like it when someone thinks they're living in a comfortable world and then suddenly starts looking at things in a totally different way mm. and suddenly nothing is safe it's a classic kind of hitchcockian twist it's a very, i mean three days of the condor especially is a very kind of hitchcockian movie this guy who's you know out of his depth the wrong man on the run right a and huge things, conspiracy it's very the 39 steps right and also having such a mundane beginning and having right. him be at lunch right getting sandwiches at just the diner right yeah all right well let's get to our uh, picks you want to go first allison sure i'll go all first right. I, you know, I mentioned the fact that Three Days of the Condor set is fairly grounded for mm -hmm. a, a conspiracy paranoid thriller because my two picks are not grounded. <laughs> they, okay. they definitely go off in, in different directions. But uh, the first one is it's set in this. It, it is made in the 60s, actually. So kind of a precursor. It is Seconds which is available for rent on a lot of the usual platforms. It's made in 1966, directed by John Frankenheimer, who it's considered the third in his paranoia tr trilogy, as it's called unofficially, the first being The Manchurian Candidate and the second being Seven Days in May, which are, I think both slightly better known in terms of, in terms of like that idea of the, the paranoid conspiracy thriller. Uh, this one stars Rock Hudson and John Randolph, and is more of a a kind of expanded cautionary tale. It's almost, it has a real Twilight Zone feel, except very built out. Randolph plays Arthur Hamilton, who is this restless middle-aged banker who's kind of chafing at his life, his job, his house in Scarsdale, the wife he's no longer passionate about, the grown daughter he never gets to see. And then he's contacted by an old friend on the phone that he thought was dead, about something called The Company, which will let you start life anew. And uh, he's convinced to go see them. And in it's kind of, first he has to go through like a like laundry and they're not there anymore. And then he finds that they're in the back of this like meat processing plant. And he's swept into this whole secret organization where for a mere $30,000, which frankly sounds like a steal when you hear what you get. <laughs> Uh, he gets a whole new life, whether he kind of wants one or not. Basically, once you're there, you're you're kind of in. But 
they will fake your death for you. They will provide a corpse that looks enough like you that uh, you everyone will think you're dead. They set up something with your life insurance, so they take care of your loved ones, and you get the rest in a trust. They give you plastic surgery, and they set you up with a brand new life somewhere else. And so he gets transformed into Tony Wilson, a painter who lives in Malibu, and who looks, fortunately for him, like Rock Hudson, who then takes over the role. And uh, he tries to start living this new life in this kind of slightly strange community out in Malibu, including this woman that he meets who seems very free spirited and uh, all of the neighbors out there. And this section, the section does tend to run a little long, I think, once he gets out into California, but it does create this great sense of disconnect as the character starts to realize that maybe he really doesn't he didn't want to run free maybe he wasn't missing out on all that much when he he chose to follow this standard life you know maybe he doesn't have a natural calling to be a bohemian californian maybe he's not much of a painter <laughs> maybe maybe this woman he's met isn't who she appears to be the paranoia kind of builds more and more as uh, the conclusion comes along in which the character also starts to realize maybe his restlessness has nothing to do with the parts of life he hasn't fulfilled. You know, maybe it's his own fault that he feels unsatisfied and has nothing to do with the things he's missed out on. And it's got a great ending uh, as as you start to realize that maybe he hasn't gotten that far Maybe he doesn't have the kind of freedom he thinks he has in this brand new life he thought he bought. But the thing that's really, and I really, really like this movie, despite the fact that I think there are some scenes that run kind of long towards California. Mm -hmm. It's got an amazing beginning and it's got a really fantastic ending. But the thing that stands out the most is the cinematography by James Wong Howe, which I think got Oscar nominated mm -hmm. and which is so ahead of its time and so good at creating a sense of just claustrophobia and a sense of just it kind of always closes in on people's faces and uh you know he uses like a wide lens and kind of always shows like the sweat on people's faces and the kind of discomfort uh and he does something that seems so prescient of weirdly the shots that you see now that are done with a gopro mm -hmm. he has shots where he like attaches a camera to the back of an actor as they're kind of walking through a party. At one point, there's a scene where he's walking through a cocktail party so that the camera kind of stays fixed on his perspective. And it is, to see that in a movie that was shot in the 60s and that has now become, like, it's the kind of shot that has become much more familiar is really incredible. It's this beautiful black and white cinematography that creates this sensibility of the world that's been, that goes starting to go slightly more and more wrong and to seem more and more foreign. It's a really enjoyable film and one that really becomes a very good be careful what you wish for tale uh, and then just gets filled with dread and uh, the feeling of this normal life that's been left behind that someone can't get back to anymore. That he suddenly has made this deal and is now, and is now forever kind of like never on that track again. Um, so that's Seconds, and it is available for rent on all the usual platforms. It's a great, great pick. Yeah, I've seen it. It's it's a good movie. I agree. It is a little long. It probably could have been tightened. There's a scene involving a party that they they make wine. Yeah, the bacchanalia goes on for a, goes long, on for a time. long time. Yes, they yeah. really are selling the the, the bacchanalia. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a good movie. A great paranoid conspiracy thriller. And listening to you talk about it, I'm thinking of like what are the things that 
all paranoid movies need. And just right off the bat, one of the things that you pointed out without even realizing it perhaps was you always need to have a character or an organization that doesn't have a name that only is referred to as, you know, in this case, the company, right? It's not uh, the Johnson company. It's the company. Or in one of the movies I'm going to talk about, there's a character who's known only as the director, right? It's you got you know that it helps to have these faceless uh, monolithic yes, kind of things. Exactly. Yes. It's a very key component. All right. My first pick is from 1978, from the heart of the the era of these kind of conspiracy thrillers, and it is called Capricorn One. It's directed by Peter Himes, and you can rent it on Amazon. That's where I watched it this week. It's a, a movie spun off from the persistent real-world conspiracy theory that NASA faked the moon landing. In this movie, NASA really does fake a landing on Mars after one of the heads of the mission, played by conspiracy thriller Hall of Famer Hal Holbrook, who was Deep Throat in All the President's well, Men, yes. discovers that the rocket ship life support system that they're supposed to send to Mars is faulty, and if they had gone to Mars, everyone on the crew would have died along the way. So, rather than scrap the launch, which could endanger NASA's funding and destroy America's space program, possibly forever, Holbrook's character decides to create this fiction. He recruits the mission's astronauts, which is an unbelievably awesome trio of James Brolin, Sam Watterson, and... The second time he's being mentioned on this podcast, O.J. Simpson, <laughs> to help him stage this landing inside a secret warehouse. But there is an additional complication on the rocket ship's re-entry to Earth, which leaves the astronauts as loose ends, which sends them running for their lives. Uh, to be totally honest here, and it's the first time I watched this movie, I've always wanted to see it. I've been curious about it, so I watched it. And there's some stuff I, I like about it. There's some stuff I don't like. I don't like the fact that the conspiracy here seems to be limitless. NASA, which in the movie is supposedly in danger of going under, of being defunded, that it's at, you know it's at the, potentially at the end of its existence, is also apparently so well-resourced that they can literally erase entire people's existence. <laughs> and this organization that is supposedly dedicated to the benevolent exploration of the cosmos apparently employs a large number of assassins and hitmen. Well, yeah. I mean, Who doesn't? I mean, I guess this is maybe part of the sort of general atmosphere of the era where all all government institutions were looked at skeptically and with a sort of a jaundiced eye. And yeah, I guess if you buy into that worldview, then maybe it's possible that even NASA is is evil. But I guess part of the problem is that the, the concept is Hal Holbrook's character, sort of like the Cliff Robertson in Three Days of the Condor, is like a guy who really believes in a cause, right? And a cause that should be good, but it's the problem is that he's willing to do anything for that cause. And I think it's that's somewhat undermined by the fact that he's like, NASA, we might, we're going to go into space, we're going to do all these incredible things, but it's also like, NASA, we're freaking evil, and we'll do <laughs> anything to uh, ensure all that sort of stuff. I found that kind of dumb, frankly. It's also a little bit dumb the way that the movie prevents the astronauts from just telling anyone they're alive, which is to have them wandering through through the desert for half the movie. Um, I think the reason that they did that, I haven't read anything about that, but I think the reason for that is that there is kind of a cool visual echo to this faked Martian landing to have them wandering through and exploring this kind of alien desert. Uh, they're exploring this alien world at home in a sense, but it's such an obvious screenwriter's trick to kind of extend the plot and keep the sort of conspiracy going and to, to make the fact that it's happening uh, 
just go on a little longer than it probably could. So the conspiracy itself is a little hit or miss. The selling points are twofold. One, the cast. I already mentioned the astronauts, and they're all really good, especially Sam Watterson, who's just constantly cutting the tension with these sarcastic one-liners. And then there's the star of the movie, who I haven't even mentioned yet. That's Elliot Gould, who plays the reckless, imaginative television reporter who accidentally stumbles on the conspiracy and then becomes one of its targets. And, I mean, if you're a fan of Elliot Gould in the 70s, this is one of his great, classic Elliot Gould performances. He just underplays all the drama. He's very removed. He's very dry. And it does a nice kind of interplay with the with the evil NASA. There's such melodramatic intensity to that storyline that his kind of like very sarcastic, very dry performance, I don't know, it balances out in a nice way. And the other really great performance is a cameo from Telly Savalas as a crop duster pilot who helps Elliot Gould out of a jam and who figures into the other big selling point of the film, which are the chase scenes. There's these two incredible chase scenes with spectacular photography maybe that's another hallmark of conspiracy movies because you mentioned that with seconds and the photography in capricorn one is just incredible there's this one scene involving the crop duster and these and these helicopters and they're banking and flying through these canyons in the desert and it's just jaw-dropping how good it looks and then there's another great sequence where elliot gould's car has been tampered with by the conspiracy and his car, the brakes go out, and he's just flying down the road, and there's a lot of perspective shots, first-person perspective of this car, and they clearly had a car rigged up to drive through traffic, swerving all over the place, and it's just fantastic. The, the, the action in this movie is really, really good. So overall, a little bit of a mixed bag, but one I would recommend. The movie definitely doesn't make the most out of the premise of the Martian faked landing and connecting that with the, the Apollo moon conspiracy, all that stuff. But the cast and the action does a nice job of making up the difference. So that's Capricorn 1, and you can rent it right now. I rented it on Amazon. I've never seen that movie, but it does sound like one of the most 70s movies ever. It is very 70s, but, and it's it's fun. It's surprisingly funny for a movie. That's the other thing that you know a lot of conspiracy theor, uh, th- theory movies, very, very dark. Sometimes in a good way, sometimes to their own detriment. I mean, the 70s were famous for bummer endings, downbeat endings. So the conspiracy thing kind of goes hand in hand because a lot of times, you know, it's not really realistic when one guy brings down this massive conspiracy. And I, I don't know, I have the feeling, although I don't know, that Peter Himes found his premise a little bit silly in and of itself and sort of embraced that with things like Telly Savalas as this foul-mouthed crop duster who's yelling at Elliot Gould to get your head out of the way, I can't see nothing while I'm flying, and all these sorts of scenes that are just kind of really charmingly funny amongst, amongst all the seriousness. So I think, I think if you enjoy this sort of thing, but also don't take them too seriously, this is a, that's a good pick for people to check out. All right, my second pick is one that's a reminder that Paranoia is not only for American movies. No, certainly not. And it certainly is part of World on a Wire, which is now streaming on Hulu Plus and is from 1973. Is Actually, it was made for television, but is directed by the great filmmaker Rainer Werner Fassbinder. It was made for German television, aired as a two-part miniseries, and is available basically in two two kind of feature-length chunks on Hulu Plus. There's Klaus Lovitch and is based on uh, an American novel called uh, Simulacron 3 by Daniel F. Galouve, which was uh, has been adapted a few times, including into the American movie The 13th Floor. 
this version is apparently a little closer, but it is centered on an institute, which is actually not called the Institute. It's called the Institute for Cybernetics and Future Science, uh, which is where a simulated world has been programmed inside a supercomputer. This world is filled with nearly 10,000 identity units uh, who are oblivious to the fact that they are artificial, that they're only part of this computer simulation. They all think they're real, except for one person, one unit who for practical purposes has been made aware of this fact. Uh, is, his name is Einstein. And he's kind of, it's tough knowledge to live with that you are just a program in a machine. So Levitch plays Fred Stiller, who becomes the technical director of the simulacrum program after its former head, his friend, Professor Vollmer, dies right in the beginning of the film under mysterious circumstances, uh, having made some major discovery that he was keeping secret and was clearly very troubled by. So Stiller takes over kind of is trying to figure out what happened and is is talking to the head of security, this man named Gunter Lauza, and uh, is about to be told what Volmer, the crazy thing that Volmer discovered at this party when something distracts him and he turns away and when he turns back, Lauza is gone. And uh, Stiller finds that not only do people not remember Lauza being at this party, People don't remember who he is at all. No one in this world seems to remember this guy who has been working at the company forever. He's, his existence seems to have been erased. And that's really only the first of a bunch of strange things that start happening as Volmer tries to, you know, take charge of this program and figure out what happened to his predecessor. And also kind of he comes in contact with his predecessor's daughter. And, and there is this overwhelming sense of not just paranoia and uncertainty but like wrongness that seeps into every corner of this movie uh it's and it's all done really through camera through the way it's shot it's not it's there there's it's not really filled with special effects at all given that it is a sci-fi story and a lot of the the kind of unsettling qualities of it are done by the way that they uh Fassbender chooses to shoot things including you know having a character stand at his desk and his face be coincidentally behind this like glass lamp so it's all warped or just positioning the camera low on the floor in a way that just throws off the perspective of a room. And also just everyone in the world already seems potentially suspicious uh, as, as the main character starts to try and figure out what has gone on. And uh, the, the film kind of lingers on people who may or may not be important, but lingers on beats that you try and you figure out if they're infused with meaning or not. I don't, I think this is not a perfect by any means. This, I, like, this was out of, um, this is kind of out of print or like not, not available for a long time. Uh, and only a few years ago came back into availability. Uh, it, it's very, it's definitely slow. I think that there are, it doesn't feel like, it necessarily needs to be two full feature lengths long, but it builds up atmosphere incredibly well. And I think it, it kind of approaches its big secret, uh, the discovery really well. You may have already guessed what the discovery is, but this has influenced multiple other properties, including the Matrix. Um, it, it manages to do this through a very 70s looking setting that also looks futuristic and also has this great airless quality that, I think seems very much of its period. It reminds me of other kind of sci-fi and uh, 
films and kind of conspiracy films of that era. But it also feels very different. Uh, and I think that's partially just that Fassbender was such a particular talent and unique talent. So it's worth the time. I think it's it requires you to really like sink into it, but it is definitely worth the time. And I think it felt very ahead of its time uh, uh, in 1973 and, and very filled with dread and existential, you know, questionings about existence and how you know that you exist and how you know that other people are uh, exist um, that are always fun, you know, uh, in sci-fi. So that is World on a Wire and it is currently streaming on Hulu Plus. Yeah, that's one I've never seen. And you hit the nail on the head. Why? It's a it's a, it's a, it's a long one. It's, it's like two hundred minutes. Yeah. yeah, it's an investment. I've just never had the time to to sit down and and watch the whole thing. Do you need to watch like both halves together? Do you think? Could you do? Could you do one? No, I one? think you could divide them up. You could divide it up. So maybe that's how I'll do it. As I'll I'll make time for one half and then I'll make time for the second half because I've always wanted to watch it as, since it you know showed up on Hulu a couple years ago. And I just, it's a little intimidating, those 200 minutes. It's not as bad as, I mean, think of how much TV <laughs> we we. This watch. is true. This is true. Yeah, it is just basically, it's just a TV show. <laughs> All right. All right, I'll have to check it out. So my last pick here, uh, back to the world of film, back to America from 1974. It is The Conversation, directed by Francis Ford Coppola which is currently streaming on Netflix. And what makes the conversation different from so many other conspiracy thrillers of its era is that it's less about the plot and the the machinery of this big conspiracy than it is about the people or really this one person. It's a thriller, generally speaking, but it's more a character study about this guy, Harry Call, played by Gene Hackman, who works as a surveillance expert. In the opening scene, he records a couple in the park and very slowly we come to understand how this recording could involve a, a dark conspiracy and does eventually swell to include a shadowy figure known only as the director. There he is, the nameless director. But for a lot of the story, it's just about Harry's life and his day-to-day routine and how he lives in this state of constant paranoia alone in his apartment with a triple lock door and an office in a, in a warehouse that's in, encased in wire mesh in this cage. Uh, he won't tell his girlfriend where he lives or what he does. He goes to church. Very tolerant on that in that front. Well, uh, for for, for at least a little bit, yeah. He goes to church and confesses his sins, and worries he's responsible for some murders that happened in the past, and is now secretly nervous that his latest recording could have the same results. Um, there are scenes in the movie that are left kind of ambiguous, where Harry sees things. And they could all be real or they could all perhaps be in his head. He could be kind of going crazy uh, as a result of all this guilt and anxiety he's feeling. And what's interesting is that, you know, many conspiracy thrillers play with that sort of stuff. Uh, You know, twists about things that the protagonist knows or sees that no one else sees. You know, identities getting erased, things we've both talked about already. But they tend to end in, like, absolute clarity, right? Like, the good guy uncovers the truth against impossible odds, or maybe they fail, but either way, the audience knows the truth. We know what's transpired, right? And the conversation is kind of special because it never leaves Harry's perspective, and it does kind of leave that conspiracy a little bit ambiguous. We see what we think we know, but how much of it is real and how much of it is Harry's interpretation of what's happened and how much of it is preying on our own feelings of paranoia and distrust. I feel like in some ways the movie is kind of a Rorschach test for your own paranoia and conspiracies. How much do you think what 
Harry is seeing is real. What do you believe? How how likely are you to distrust someone whose name is the director? Uh, I will I will concede that despite saying all of this stuff and and liking the movie a lot, I'm not the the biggest fan of this movie. I actually. I don't think I would mind if it was a little more traditional as a thriller. I feel like the character stuff is great. I don't want to lose any of it, but I wouldn't mind if it was just a little bit more thrillery, suspenseful. I feel like that would maybe make it even better. I do love Roger Ebert's great movies essay on the film, and especially when he talks about why he thinks it's one of Francis Ford Coppola's best. And he writes... Coppola, who wrote and directed the film, considers it his most personal project. He's working two years after the Watergate break-in amid the ruins of the Vietnam effort, telling the story of a man who places too much reliance on high technology and has nightmares about his personal responsibility. Harry Call is a microcosm of America at that time. Not a bad man, trying to do his job, haunted by a guilty conscience, feeling tarnished by his work. And I think that's all really insightful and dead on. What I would add is that you know, there's that famous expression of ignorance is bliss. And the conversation, I would say, is the story of a man who is wise and miserable. And it's about the misery of of, of knowledge or at least believing yourself to have uh, knowledge. And I think uh, I think that's what makes it so resonant is he has his eyes opened or his eyes are open and he's sort of he almost it's like impossible to live with what he knows, basically. Yeah. Well, speaking of those kind of those endings, it has a fantastic ending. Yes. It just uh, as an image is really very hard to shake. Yes. Very haunting. And that is definitely another kind of hallmark of these conspiracy thrillers is that even when they have a quote unquote happy ending that they have a sort of discordant final note. I mean, even three days of the condor, like the, even the music has like a literal discordant note, like the music kind of pauses in mid phrase and it kind of echoes in this kind of slightly ominous way that that, you know, even if things seemingly worked out OK, that there is like, you know, too much. And now you have to live with this burden, which is so hard to do. Yeah. So it's definitely a, a classic conspiracy thriller of the 70s. If you've never seen it. Definitely worth a watch. It is The Conversation, and it is streaming now on Netflix. It is time once again for Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup, the segment so longly named that Allison doesn't know what it is, and that's why I always have to say it. Yes. That is true. All right, we've only got one movie to discuss. But because there movie. Is, because there is only <laughs> one movie to discuss, Allison, <laughs> and it is Furious 7. The seventh installment in the surprisingly long-running Fast and Furious franchise. Allison, we've both seen it. We've we've survived somehow. It was an emotional experience for me, I assume for you as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did, did you cry? I did not cry, but I what? was touched. What kind of a monster are you? A giant monster. What, where is your heart? Monster. Where is your soul? I locked it away how, somewhere. How dare you? All right, well, what did you think of the film overall? It's uh, has a plot that makes no sense. No, it is bloated and excessive. Yes, and it's terrific. It's tremendous, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, it's an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. I would rank it as the second best after Fast Five. I would you say the third best after Fast Five and, and what? You know which one? Tokyo Drift. Yes, <sighs> I love Tokyo Drift. I think it's the finest in the series. <sighs> We've uh, like. Let's not go here. No, it's not uh, even worth not, it. I just it, if people want to hear evening. my thoughts, if people want to hear my thoughts about Tokyo Drift and why it's not this masterpiece that everyone claims it is now, this revisionist nonsense, they can read my rankings of all the Fast and Furious movies on Screen Crush. I wrote a whole piece. You can find it there. 
And if anyone would like to read my thoughts about <laughs> Tokyo Drift and why it is the best in the series and that it is in no way revisionist to say this, you can read them in my rankings, which will be published on BuzzFeed.com oh my God. Uh, by the time this podcast is live. We, we might not be able to. Our friendship, our podcast partnership might end, actually, might end, might over, end over this. this. Yes, Jen Yamato, a colleague of a friend of both of ours, DM'd me on Twitter to be like, you guys should do a Fast and Furious podcast. And, and I was just, like, we would I was fight like, too we much. Might never, our friendship might not survive <laughs> if we did that. But let's talk about Furious 7. Okay, okay. It does, it um, is a surprisingly poignant send-off for the late Paul Walker. Yes. It does this actually very well. Surprisingly well. Yeah, considering. I I will say, surprisingly, but I will give the, I will say this about the the Fast and Furious franchise, which I rewatched the entire thing of in the week after I saw Furious 7 to write those rankings. You know, it's always been a pretty sentimental franchise oh, yeah. with all this talk about family and you know bros loving on each other hugging and and really like without ever saying i love you so much really lo- it's it's about these guys loving each other and yeah. in, in almost at times almost a homoerotic way like the 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 relationship between Brian and Dom and the relationship between Dom and the Rock and the Rock later <laughs> yes i would agree those both have these dimensions where they they seem to they could almost be more than friends and i would argue that they might even be better movies if they became lovers I, that, that's a conversation for another time but i, I feel like that well, might I mean, be true he basically he brian gets together with dom's sister which is as close as possible it as is to getting kind of, together with dom it kind of is you're you're absolutely right but I would say this, the, the the tragedy of Paul Walker's death really allowed the franchise to really own that sentimental side in a way it never has before. Like, it's been there in all the movies kind of beneath the surface, and here it is really front and center. But I think it works because they, they really have established it with these characters. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, this also, James Wan took over the uh, the franchise from Justin Lin, who didn't feel like he had enough time to prepare between Fur- Furious 6 and I can't, there's like not a very consistent. Fast and Furious movie. 6 and Furious 7. Yes. And uh, I think James Wan had like a very good sense of where the franchise is right now, which is like a very, a great sense of the excessive. Yeah. Uh, of that sentimentality and also the sense of humor. Yeah, he did a great job. Yeah, and it, and it is such a a tightrope to walk because it has this very sentimental, emotional side about Paul Walker and his character, but at the same time, it He's, still has to be silly and over the top and fun, and yeah, it is. It is. It's so much fun. I mean, there are two sequences that are as good as anything in the franchise so far. Yeah, and it also has, I think, one of my favorite rock moments of all time. The cast when yes, he breaks the cast. The it's cast. in the trailer. It's not really a spoiler. Yeah, yes, but when it he, is so good. <laughs> he's, he's healed so much he can just break through his cast through just flexing he his gigantic he arm. He wills his arm to heal. Yes. He's been in the hospital. There's also a scene, and I won't specify because I don't want to spoil this, where I thought it was implied that Vin Diesel had earthquake powers. Did you get that? He d- Yeah. Like, he seems to have achieved well, earthquake it's, power. It's also, it's part of a scene involving... Guys fighting with metal... like. Not just wrenches, metal, wrenches yeah. tied into Dominic Toretto's dark personal history. True, very true. And it's like um, it's like Highlander. It is a little Highlanderish, <laughs> in the best way in possible. The best way possible. <laughs> yeah, I I agree with you that the 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 problem here and the reason it's not like the best one is that the plot is just so stupid. Even even by the standards of this franchise, it which is saying is something insane. There, yeah. there, he, you know, it's it's he it, Vin Diesel wants revenge on Jason Statham. So he has to go get this computer doohickey called the God's Eye, and yet Jason Statham is in the room with him constantly, time after well, that's time. It. Like he needs this thing to track to Jason find Statham. Jason Statham, and Jason, Jason Statham's like, "I'm right here." He's, like shows up every time to do anything. <laughs> I know, and like when they get it, 
it helps them not at all. No, it actually makes things much, makes more, much, much, much more difficult. Yeah. So and the, also, Jaimon Hansu should mention also shows up in the Jaimon Hansu role. I know you. You love when Jaimon <laughs> Hansu plays a a a thug. Yes, the poor guy. He's always like the supporting, not even the main bad guy. He's always like <laughs> He's the second the or third. Yeah, Jaimon Hansu. So he has business cards that say Jaimon Hansu, professional supporting bad guy. Yeah, you've written about this and uh, an excellent piece in BuzzFeed. You'll have to. Are you going to update the piece now? I should. You're going to have to. I know. I know. You have to update it. All I right. I don't even remember that character's name. Well, that is Furious 7. Clearly, we're we're fans. <laughs> yeah, I think if you are a fan of the franchise, there's almost no way you won't be satisfied by this one. Yeah, I'd be shocked uh, it, it to hear you... someone say, oh, I love Fast and Furious, but I didn't like this one. No, it gives you everything you'd want. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Behind the 8-Ball. It's where we, we count down three new titles on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations, and then we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. Allison, do you want me to go first? Yeah, why don't you go first? Are you ready, Matt? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, three new releases. All right, first up, the superb documentary on one of my personal heroes. I just read something he wrote in the last segment, the late film critic Roger Ebert. It's called Life Itself, and it's directed by Steve James, the man who made Hoop Dreams. And it is an extremely effective doc about Ebert's life, career, and passions. Ebert famously described the movies as empathy machines, that allow us to feel what it must be like to be a member of a different gender or race or sexual orientation. And so I can't think of much higher praise for life itself than to say it lives up to that ideal. It is a very empathetic movie. You really feel uh, uh, you, you feel all the feels, as the kids would say in this movie. It's a very, very powerful film. I think it's a very, very fitting tribute to Roger Ebert and is worth checking out. That's Life Itself, streaming on Netflix. Next up, a superb police procedural from Korea that I, I love so much that I find it hard to believe in 82 episodes of SVU. No one has recommended it before, but according to our archives, we have not. It's called Memories of Murder from director Bong Joon-ho, who made The Host, Mother, and Snowpiercer. It's a film based on the real case of South Korea's first serial killer and stars the great actor Song Kang-ho as the detective who's assigned to track him down. Like a lot of great Korean crime films, it is sad, dark, and brutal, but haunting and very, very powerful. I've uh, compared the film in the past, at least in terms of the tone and the style, to David Fincher's Zodiac. If you like that movie and you're thinking you'd like to watch other similar movies about cops and the emotional toll their work takes on their lives, this is definitely one to check out. That's Memories of Murder, streaming on Hulu. And finally, as we get amped up for the big farewell for Mad Men, you can rewatch Season 7 Part 1 on Netflix. I've been anticipating uh, this season, Allison, with a mix of melancholy and anticipation. I would call it melanticipation. It's catchy. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to copyright that word. Uh, in these seven episodes, which were the first half of the final season, Don Draper tries to save his floundering career and his crumbling marriage and break a Guinness World Record for the most alcohol consumed in a single season of television. I won't spoil whether he gets there or not. So that's Mad Men Season 7 Part 1, which is streaming now on Netflix. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right. First up, a listener from Rebecca, whose Twitter handle is O-F-M-E-A-N-S-A-N-D-E-N-D-S, of Means and Ends, I believe it is. And Rebecca writes, Hi, Allison and Matt. I wanted to send in a recommendation as I just finished watching A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which recently became available to rent, and I am dying to tell other people to watch it. I would love to hear you discuss it sometime. As a feminist and someone who used to work on U.S.-Iran relations and visit Iran, I was eagerly anticipating this feminist Iranian vampire western. I was blown away by the elegance of every shot and drawn in by the atmosphere and strange story to the extent that there is one. 
I'm sure you've heard a lot of, of the comparisons being made to David Lynch and Jim Jarmusch. I'm very eager to see what the director, Anna Lily Amirpour, does next. That is a recommendation of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. It's available to rent, and that comes from Rebecca. Thank you, Rebecca. Next, we've got a recommendation from David, a listener named David, who writes, Dear Allison and Matt, I wanted to recommend an excellent documentary now available on Netflix called Los Angeles Plays Itself. My wife and I recently moved to L.A. all the way from Sydney, Australia. And one of the first things we we watched once we'd set up Netflix in our apartment was this beautiful visual essay of our recently adopted home. While initially put off by the oh-so-serious narration, written by CalArts film theory teacher Tom Anderson, and read in the driest tones of Anki King, over the next two and a half hours, we began to see that Anderson's caustic take on the celluloid mistreatment of his hometown is simply a reflection of the deep love he feels for the city. However, if the narration becomes a problem, the shots selected from various movies filmed in Los Angeles are so carefully curated and gorgeous that the documentary could be appreciated even if the sound were muted. I'd recommend Los Angeles plays itself to anyone with an interest in the city of Los Angeles or to any lover of cinema. To the former, it gives a fascinating history lesson through the prism of film studies, and to the latter, it will give you hundreds of examples of beautifully shot films to watch or to watch again. Cheers from David, and that is a fine recommendation for one of my favorite films, Los Angeles Plays Itself. All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number 62, and that this time is Labyrinth. The Jim Henson fantasy film stars David Bowie. I'm I've, familiar with it, yes. <laughs> how many times have you seen it? I, I don't know. Too many? It's or... been on TV a lot. Ugh. I've seen it a lot. We also used to own it on VHS, I think. Yeah, see, I think I did own it on VHS or I taped it off of television as a kid. Maybe saw it a couple times, but then now haven't seen it in... 25 years David 20 Bowie years that movie was like one of my earliest crushes really oh yeah no, that that explains goblin, a lot goblin king that explains yeah. a lot well it's one that i haven't seen in so long that I, I when i saw it on netflix i was like boy i would like to check it out and, and and see how it holds up but i just haven't had a chance to do that yet so that's my 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 list pick this week labyrinth allison yes. are you ready for your countdown i am ready Let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay, first up is uh, actually available for rent on Vimeo On Demand. It is World of Tomorrow, the newest film from Don Hertzfeldt, the great independent animator and a favorite of both of ours. Uh, This short won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in January, then won the Shorts Prize at South by Southwest earlier this month and is uh, is now available for rent for a few bucks. Uh, it's worth selling out. I wouldn't normally say that a 15, 20 minute short is is necessarily one you should rush to pay for, but I think in this case it definitely is, in part because I think you should support him and in part because it's very, very good. Uh, the premise is basically that there is a little girl named Emily who is voiced by Hertzfeld's four, four-year-old niece who is adorable sounding and who receives a surprise visitor from the future. And like a lot of Hertzfeldt's work, it is funny and sad and wonderful. And he is working on a feature next. So I am very excited to see what becomes of that. Maybe, who knows how long that will take. He's actually working with other people on this feature. So, oh, good. Yes. Yeah, um, we, we have talked about his work before on the show, Film Spotting SVU number 32. We talked about it such a beautiful day if people want to go back and listen to that. All right, and now uh, now streaming on Hulu is Clean, uh, which is a 2004 film from Olivier Assayas, whose new film, Clouds of Sils Maria, comes out this month. 
This one stars his ex-wife, Maggie Chung, who starred in Irma Vep, his earlier film, uh, as a former VJ and junkie whose lover, a rock star, dies of an overdose. Um, she spent some time in prison, and after she's out, she tries to get clean herself and get her life back on track, including winning the trust of her father-in-law. He's played by Nick Nolte, and you know you're in trouble if you have to win the trust of Nick Nolte. <laughs> you're the one trying to impress him. In order to see her son again. And, you know, Maggie Chung is a great actress, unquestionably, but it's really one thing that's really nice to see in this film is just to her, see her put in a very different kind of role and uh, to see her do just such good things with this, I think. And also just to have that sense of intimacy with the director. You know, they were married and worked very well together. And finally, new to Amazon Prime is The Zero Theorem, which is the latest from Terry Gilliam. Like a lot of people, I've been waiting and waiting for Terry Gilliam to make another great film. And this is not a great film, though it's often an interesting one. And it is a very Terry Gilliam film. Uh, I think it's maybe most easily compared to Brazil and also the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Christoph Waltz, your favorite, Matt, um, plays a programmer. <laughs> yes, he is my favorite. I love his accent. <laughs> Who's constantly waiting for an important phone call. He's like kind of based his life around it that never comes. Um, and he's figured out a way to work from home because of it. And this also kind of paranoid existence. Uh, it's really the little, ti the little details in this that are the best, including Tilda Swinton as a psychiatrist CD-ROM, basically. And Matt Damon as, in great paranoid film fashion, management um, so that is the zero theorem and it is available on amazon prime all right how about two listener recommendations we got a very timely one from scott from seattle excellent yes who wrote this will be my first recommendation as every time i think about sending one your way someone else beats me to it anyway the other day i was just bouncing around netflix randomly and i clicked on an odd little stick figure animation film picking it mostly because it was just over an hour long, which is the amount of time I was looking to kill. Not the kind of thing I would usually watch at all. It's called It's Such a Beautiful Day from animator Don Hertzfeldt. The film completely, utterly blew me away. I cannot remember the last time a film left me feeling so moved and stunned and then stayed with me for days and weeks afterwards. It has affected my dreams. I've recommended it to everyone I know and have yet to have a single person say anything other than, wow, that was amazing, or words to that effect. It starts out sweet, funny, and smart, and then it becomes sad, then sincerely disturbing, and then incredibly profound, and then all of these things together in various combinations over and over again. This is a film made in three parts over years and years, all done by hand by one person working alone, and then brilliantly edited together into a single narrative. I cannot say enough about it. I'm a longtime lover of cinema, and it shocks me to say this, but in many ways, this might be the most brilliant work of genius I've ever seen in a film. Wow. It is so packed full of ideas and emotions that make you think deeply about the nature of human existence and your own fragility and mortality, while never ceasing to be endlessly charming and watchable. I've never heard anyone talk about this film anywhere. Well, Scott... Yeah, you are in luck. You can hear us talk about the film, uh, as Matt mentioned, on episode 32. And yes, I would also highly recommend this if you have not had a chance yet. It really is a kind of sui generis, you know, piece of work. Um, so that's streaming on Netflix. Thank you, Scott, for that. 
And Marco sent us a recommendation. Uh, Marco writes, I just wanted to drop a short note to suggest The Bletchley Circle from the BBC. The first two seasons are now streaming on Netflix. It follows four women who were employed in Bletchley, the same location followed in the imitation game, in their lives in the aftermath of World War II, finding jobs, finding husbands, and not being able to tell anyone of their background. When a serial killer begins murdering women, they come together once again to find him. Um, we actually got a recommendation of this a few months ago, too, mm. from Jill. So I wanted to read her recommendation. She wrote, I'm hooked on the Bletchley Circle, British 1940s period wartime series. But you may have to suffer from extreme Anglophilia as I do in order to truly appreciate this. Um, I've seen some of this and I really liked it as well. So I feel like you you may or may not need to be infected with Anglophilia. But I think it, it it's it's very it's satisfying to watch. Um, that's the Bletchley Circle, and it is available on Netflix. And thank you to Marco and Jill for uh-huh. your recommendations. All right, and one film chosen blindly by number from your my list. You gave me number thirty two, and it is Wetlands, which oh, we which not did not again which did not win our oh. listeners' choice poll. I just dodged. I narrowly ago. dodged that bullet, but yes. it just the bullet is curving and following me it lost to automata in episode number 78 when matt rallied his secret underground network that is of, not true of you know cia agents to vote <laughs> uh and, and assassins it was a massive conspiracy and that was a weird use of assassins frankly you know to, to hire them just to vote it online, was a little but, excessive i'll admit but you have to do something with that pool of assassins you just have lying around i know i'm, I'm, I'm paying NASA, for i'm paying for them nasa's not using them anymore anyway as this is a movie about antisocial teen helen who is you know interested in reuniting her parents and falls in love after a freak shaving accident with all her hygiene experiments. Famously gross uh, female comedy. And I still have not seen it yet. It's on the list, though. uh, Wetlands on Netflix. All right. Let's get to our options for our next listener's choice review. I think it's another excellent batch. I think I might know what's going to win, but we'll see. We will see, Allison. What is our first choice? Well, our first choice is actually a pair of films. It's The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, which is available as three separate films on Netflix. We're going to go with Her and Him, um, as opposed to Them, which is the first two films cut together in a shorter version. Um, these films star Jessica Chastain and James McAvoy, and they're from Ned Benson, written and directed. And they follow, they're kind of set in the same time period and tell parallel stories. One from the perspective of Connor, played by James McAvoy, who is the husband, and one from the perspective of Eleanor Rigby, played by Jessica Chastain, who is the wife. And it kind of looks at this couple's marriage and a particular kind of event that's happened by way of both of their perspectives. So you can watch either one first and they kind of together tell a whole story. So I think that's a really, I think, different approach to filmmaking, particularly as a for a filmmaking debut. It's not brand new, but it's it's one that people don't try very often. And I, I like the idea of them as parallel, pa- like a paired set. Of, of films and I think there's a lot we can talk about there in terms of kind of perspective and uh, and maybe point of view yeah I'm not really sh- sure what the point was of making the third combined movie I think it was that the Weinstein company was like make something we can put is this just a single feature length 
I mean, perhaps, but yeah, I guess it, I, it, it seems to undermine the whole concept, the whole right? Which is why them. we're going to, uh, well, you've seen them. Yes. And it's not worth, I mean, I don't think it's worth seeing. But you haven't seen the individual movies. No. Okay. See, I didn't, I missed all of them a bit because I, partly because I was sort of like, I don't know where to even start. They like made it so confusing also. So I think that's why we're going to go just with him and her. We'll have to figure out whether we're going to watch them in a certain order or not. That would be the other question I would have is, do yeah, we do I, we pick one to watch first or do we let our consciences think, be our guide or I do we deliberately do it in opposite ways to see what happens? That might be good, too. Yeah. yeah I, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a neat experiment. Yeah. All right. There'll be a lot to talk about there. Well, we'll see if that wins. That's option number one. Option number two will be available on Netflix starting on April 10th. It is Marvel's Daredevil. This is the new Netflix original series, the first, apparently, in a whole new era of Marvel TV shows on Netflix. This is the first of, I believe, is it four or five? I guess five, ultimately. Five. I think they all come together. Right, there's, right. there's like four series. Right. One is Jessica Jones. Jessica Jones. Which is the one that everyone seemed to be the most excited about. Well, it's based on a really cool kind of more adult comic, which is about a, a private detective who used to be a superhero called Alias. You can understand why it is not called <laughs> Alias on television because yes. there already was an Alias on television. But yeah, that's the second one. And then there's also a Luke Cage uh, series. Right. Who is sort of, at least, I mean, there's been different v- variations of that character, but I'm guessing they're going to go with the version who's kind of like a a hero for hire was his original series. was That was the title of it, where he's kind of a, a guy like people can hire to be their superhero, essentially, which is kind of an interesting premise. Yeah. And then I believe the fourth one is Iron Fist, I want to say, who is... Has has a history with Luke Cage as they've been partners in a in that hero for hire business, but he's also a businessman and a mystic, and he's more of a martial artist kung fu type character. Um, and then they're all supposed to come together as Avengers style in a series called The Defenders. But this is Daredevil. It is the first of all of these uh, series, so you can get in on the ground floor. It is based on the Marvel comic book. Of course, they made a movie version, which I know Allison is a huge fan of. I, we've already talked about Elektra before this. Let's you, not pretend otherwise. You really like Elektra a lot. You it's were a raving. Movie, you were but, raving like, about I'm it. I'm fascinated by it. You were raving about it. I'm not sure if Elektra is going. I don't believe Elektra is going to be on the show at least to start. I imagine if the series continues, she will would join the cast at some point. But I believe in the to, for the first season, she's not a part I'm of it. I'm assuming she's not running around in battle lingerie. This seems to be a gritty or more realistic form of this we shall see we shall see yes but charlie cox plays matt murdoch the blind new york city attorney who at night uh protects the streets of hell's kitchen one of the more dated elements (laughs) of all marvel comics is the idea that daredevil is the protector of hell's kitchen which is now not a neighborhood that needs a lot of protection it's a lovely neighborhood some rent control is what it needs I wonder if this show it's a is going tough superhero story. Though. Yeah, I wonder if this show is going to address that. But anyway, that's that's the how it is in the comic books. Uh, Deborah Ann Wool plays Karen Page, who is his assistant. Rosario Dawson plays a a character who's a nurse. And in what looks to be really good casting, Vincent D'Onofrio plays the kingpin, who is the bad guy of the whole series, and just looks terrific. He looks looks really really great. So. Will it be good? I don't know. I tried watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I didn't really love that uh, or like it at all. 
I watched a little of Agent Carter. I thought that was a little bit better. But really, I, I, I while I enjoy the Marvel movies a lot, their TV efforts so far I've found a little lackluster. I'm hoping that this is the moment where they get that all figured out. I've actually watched all of both of those shows. Yeah. And yet, when I look at the trailer for this one, I am not filled with great anticipation. Mm, okay. I think because I just... It looks very dark. Like, sometimes literally dark. Well, yeah. Trailers are sometimes literally underlit daredevil yeah daredevil is a is, is is generally a darker character and i think that you're right it's a dangerous thing the movie kind of went comically dark with it and i think it went oh, sort of so dark that it got got silly so it's dangerous but i mean rea- the, the rea- reality is we're going to be watching this one or at least checking this one out anyway so Absolutely. we thought why and people are going to be talking about it so why not make it option two marvel's daredevil available on april 10th on netflix all right and option three is this is this is an interesting mix of films. It is. Is a musical. It is, but a modern musical, God Help the Girl, which is a directorial debut of Stuart Murdoch of the band Bell and Sebastian. It is streaming on Amazon Prime, and it stars Emily Browning as a girl who escapes from a psychiatric hospital where she's being treated for anorexia, makes her way to Glasgow, and tries to fulfill her dream of being a musician. And she You're meets- sure you're not describing Sucker Punch? Uh, maybe, maybe this is this the is sequel, sequel to, to Sucker Punch. Punch. Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah, it uh, stars Ollie Alexander, Hannah Murray, and Pierre Boulanger as well, and uh, involves many Bell and Sebastian E musical numbers and some, you know, really charming looking outfits. And it is, by all accounts, very whimsical and, you know, Bell and Sebastian E. I don't know any better description than that. If you know the band, it sounds very in character for them. Yeah. Uh, so that is God Help the Girl, and it is available on Amazon Prime. And I don't know what themes we could do from that. We haven't talked about musicals for a while, have we? I don't think so. Or maybe rock musicals or pop musicals. Yeah. Musicals featuring, you know, the work kind of, of a... unconventional musicals. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. yeah. Those are all good, good, strong possibilities. All right, so which movie or TV show should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting SVU? You can send your picks to svu at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, April 6th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, at filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or TV show. And then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on or around Tuesday, April 14th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and the occasional television show that we discuss on the episode. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks, or slightly less than two weeks this time, with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each listener's choice poll and where we share more streaming suggestions, um, some, some of them from you guys, the SVU listeners, uh, throughout the week. So for Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>